Good morning. It is indeed a great time to celebrate freedom, and I hope that you all stayed safe as well. My kids absolutely love the 4th. They love picking out fireworks, and not just any fireworks. When they go into the store, they walk straight to that aisle of really expensive ones. Uh, and at six and seven years old, they already think that they deserve this. We call this an entitlement mentality. And I'm sure that every parent here knows what I mean, but just to make sure that we're all on the same page, let me define it for you. An entitlement mentality is the mindset rooted in the belief that you are inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. It is a frame of mind where you take for granted or assume that you have certain things that should be seen as gifts, but instead you view them as a right. An entitlement mentality is not only something that kids struggle with, it's actually common for here, us here in America to become accustomed to certain blessings. As Paul turns the chap corner in Romans 9 through 11, he is concerned that the Gentiles will fall into this trap of spiritual entitlement. We can actually make the same mistake today. We could open up our Bibles and read Romans 9 through 11 and, and develop an arrogant heart when it comes to outsiders. Miss the point of God's grace, his offering um, beyond just the people of Israel and place ourselves in a very spiritually dangerous situation. Again, we're reflecting on this promise of Israel's unbelief. This has been a theme through the journey of Romans 9 and 10, but Paul picks it up again in order to make a point about spiritual entitlement very clear. In verse 1, Paul begins with the question, has God rejected his people? Then clearly turns around and answers that God has not rejected his people. He says, by no means and then provides a number of positive statements designed to support this appeal. He, he uses his own personal example. See, Paul is an Israelite from the descendant of Abraham and from the tribe of Benjamin. So he is a personal example that God still saves Jewish people. And in verse 2, Paul again appeals to God's sovereignty. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has set his love on his people, and he is working out a plan. To foreknow is more than just knowing who will choose him. It means to set one's love upon or to draw to oneself. Israel was not totally rejected because of God's sovereign plan. To illustrate that point once more, Paul cites the example of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19 when the people of Israel were disobedient and rebellious, and yet there are still 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. Even though things look bleak, God is still at work. You see, that's the point. And in verse 5, it finally grounds the hope for Israel solely on God's grace and his mercy. It says this, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. These statements are meant to be reassuring. See, God has not rejected his people, his people entirely, but rather has preserved a remnant. In other words, in the midst of the overall rejection of Israel, God's grace is still at work. But there are some warnings here. Verse 7 really re-emphasizes the reality of what Paul is saying while also adding another sobering aspect, the hardening. 
So seven says this, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The story of Israel is not just that the people of Israel rejected the Messiah by seeking righteousness in their own works or ability, but also that they were hardened. We've heard this concept previously in Romans 9.18, where it says that God has mercy or hardens whoever he wills. The reference to hardening here is to emphasize an important warning that there have been many times in history when in response to sin, God creates a spiritual hardness in people. In other words, there's a point in a person or a nation where they are marked by their unwillingness to listen to biblical truth. And that lands on an unreceptive heart. The hardness of heart is a sign of God's judgment. And the condition of a hard heart is simply caused by unbelief. The writer of Hebrew warns the readers about this condition, which can temporarily take hold in some and permanently characterize others. He says this in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but rather exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has a hardening effect on the heart. And there comes a point where God gives people over to their sin to such a degree that they become futile in their thinking and their foolish heart becomes darkened. While I don't think that this can happen to a true believer, it certainly can happen to unsaved individuals on a widespread scale. And this entire group is characterized by that hardness of heart. The possibility of hardness of heart should remind us that sin is not just wrong, but it's dangerous. Unbelief and sinful actions create a calcification of the soul. So what used to make us feel guilty starts to become easier, and and being blatantly hypocritical or outright judgmental becomes just a natural part of your persona. And the word of God just bounces off of your heart and soul. Be careful. Because if Israel missed her Messiah, and if the people of God were hardened, we can't assume that you, your family, or even our church is immune. See, if it can happen to Israel, it can happen anywhere. Now, To make the point even more evident, Paul cites a combination of three Old Testament passages in verses 8 through 10. He he quotes Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 29, Psalm 69, and he says this, Listen for the heavy tone regarding God's judgment. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor and eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The warning about hardness of heart now becomes even heavier because God is the just God. He is the acting agent. He is the one pouring out judgment 
upon the people. Charles Spurgeon said the following in a sermon delivered in 1887. See, hardness of heart is a great and grievous evil. It exists not only in the outside world, but in many who frequent the courts of the Lord's house. Beneath the robes of religion, many carry a heart of stone. It is more than possible to come to baptism and sacred supper, to come consistently to the hearing of the word, and even as a matter of form to attend private religious duties, and yet still have an unrenewed heart, a heart within no spiritual life palpitates, no spiritual feeling exists. Nothing good can come from a stony heart. It is barren as rock. Pharaoh's heart Hard heart was a prophecy that his pride would meet a terrible overthrow. The hammer of vengeance is not far off and when the heart becomes harder than an adamant stone. So the story of Israel is a cautionary tale for all of us about the danger of hardening, gospel-rejecting heart. It cautions us about whether or not we should take sin seriously. It warns us not to assume that we can change the future, but rather it compels us to trust in Christ today. However, there is still hope for the people. See, verses 11 through 12 show us the context of a bigger plan that God is working out and how it involves the Gentiles. In verse 11, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means richness for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? We hear a shift very clearly in verse 13 as Paul speaks directly to the Gentiles, and then identifies himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. See, they are the primary audience for the book of Romans. And as Paul hopes for the expansion of his ministry with the goal of making the Jews jealous, verse 14 and 15 actually are a restatement of verses 11 and 12. He says this, I magnify my ministry in order that to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save them. For their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul believes that if the gospel is gloriously displayed right now through the Gentiles, how much greater will the glory be where Israel is characterized as life from the dead? For the Jews to turn from their unbelief and embrace the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus, that would truly be a resurrection. And it would be a glorious demonstration of God's glory, justice, and mercy to not only save the Gentiles, but then to use the salvation of the Gentiles to bring about the salvation of Israel. Now, to make that point about Israel's future salvation clear, Paul uses two illustrations in verse 16. He, he talks about dough and an olive tree. Both are biblical metaphors with the same basic point. Namely, a portion of something affects the whole. So Paul is trying to help us see the hardness of Israel and the inclusion of the Gentiles in a context of a much broader sovereign plan. 
He wants us to see what the future looks like and feel the hope that God has given us. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and his rejection by the Jews could be seen in this context, and it serves as a great motivator. And in this current season, um, a lot of my friends have been watching old Nebraska football games, and even though they know the end score, there's still some sort of suspense while watching the game. For us as Christians, knowing the final victory and who wins should give us a fearless hope. It's a reason why texts like Romans 11, Romans 8, and the entire book of Revelation are in the Bible. They show us that God is sovereign and that he is doing something that we can now have hope and boldly preach the gospel with even more boldness than what we had prior. The focus in this final section is entirely on the Gentiles. That's you and me. And it takes place, it takes us back to the theme of entitlement. See, Paul being a good pastor and a wise man, he knows that human beings tend to do certain things. And one of those things is we tend to think that we are the exception to the rule. We tend to quickly forget how much like everyone else we really are. I think one of the shocking realities for me going off to college is that Graduating high school towards the top of my class, when I was suddenly confronted with the reality that in college, there are a lot more people way smarter than I am. You may have been a standout in high school, but in college, you might just be average. And the further up you go, the less exceptional you tend to be. From a spiritual standpoint, Paul wanted us to tell us to be careful about how we view ourselves. And so he gives an explanation and, and even some caution. Paul begins by identifying in verse 17 that the Gentiles needed to view themselves correctly. And while it is true that some of the Israelite branches were broken off, the Gentiles were grafted into the olive tree so that they now share in the nourishing root of that olive tree. It's a remarkable image. The grafting of a tree branch involves the forced attachment of an unnatural branch to a tree so that it derives life and nourishment from the root. The Gentiles have become part of the people of God whose roots are Jewish. Those who are not Jewish becoming recipients of the salvation which was first promised to the Jew. This promise of a new covenant has come not just for Israel, but for us, the Gentiles, both of whom are now part of the people of God. Both are a part of the olive tree whose chief characteristic is belief. God has grafted me and you into the spiritual promise of redemption through belief in Jesus. That is an amazing story. I don't know how you can't get so excited even just hearing it, but it would be very easy for us sometimes to forget who we are. See, we can become so accustomed or enamored with the spiritual blessings that they would look down on others and actually start to fall into the same spiritual mistake that Paul is warning against. See, Paul's warnings in verses 18 through 24 kind of summarized into this. It says, don't be arrogant. Uh, Verses 18 through 19, Paul warns the Gentiles about becoming prideful as they look out over the history of redemption. The Gentiles could be tempted to conclude that they are superior better, more spiritual. And, and being grafted in, they could arrogantly 
and ironically, fall into the same trap that Israel had. Arrogance, pride, and a sense of superiority over others, those are embodied deeply in the sinful heart of man. It surfaces in socioeconomic status, racial issues, and even in regards to spirituality. See, to be human is to struggle with arrogance. And Paul warns us to, to think biblically about ourselves and the grace of God in our own lives. We may need to be reminded of who we are and where we fit in the plan of God because we were grafted in, not by our means, not by our works, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. The warning here is to the Gentiles. It's one that we need to consider in more than just a historical sense. We need to heed this personally. So here's my challenge. Don't get used to God's grace. Don't stop marveling at the shocking reality of what God has done for us, but rather remind yourself often about who you were, who you still are, and what God did to conquer your heart. The test comes when you see somebody stuck in sin or, or maybe fall tragically. Do you think, hmm, I'm glad I'm not like that? Or do you think, without God, that's exactly where I would be? See, we have to remember who we were before God's grace became a part of the equation. Otherwise, we might find ourselves overconfident. And the other caution is found in verses 20 through 24. The Gentiles should also continue to be warned about becoming too confident in themselves as it relates to spirituality. They should tremble at how Israel was judged by God and never stop trusting in God's mercy. In verses 20 through 22, the tone is, is sharp and it's direct. See, unbelief was the cause of Israel being cut off. The Gentiles should learn from that example and they should stand fast in the faith. Belief is what grafted them into the people of God and they should never retreat from that position by starting to trust in themselves or their heritage. Verse 22 is particularly important as we read about both the kindness and the severity of God. See, as the sovereign over the universe, he is full of mercy, grace, and kindness for those who believe in him. But he is also equally full of justice, wrath, and judgment against those who have not submitted to his righteousness. God is equally just and merciful, and the dividing line between mercy and justice is belief. Our passage concludes in the verses saying God's mercy is for everyone. And if they believe, they too can be grafted into the people of God. The offer is for anyone, including the Jews, to come to faith in Christ. Unbelievers should believe. And believers should read this text and continue believing. See, if you are not a Christian, if you, you need to know that all the beautiful things that you enjoy every single day of your life, the success that you've had, the fact that you are alive today, those aren't a part of your life because of you. The reality is that you do not deserve all this kindness that you have received. And I would imagine somewhere in your heart, you know that. The Bible says that the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, to a to point you away from yourself and toward a relationship with your creator through the finished work of Christ. 
Now I say this gently, but with conviction, hell will be populated with people who are surprised that they're there. Don't be one of those. Put your faith and confidence in Jesus. And if you're a true follower of Jesus, then this passage should make you tremble. While I don't think that anyone can lose his or her salvation, I think it's a sobering warning. There is a great danger in assuming that you are a believer. This passage is a good place for self-examination. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 through 12, um, the one who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. Romans 11 calls us to not be arrogant or overconfident. And it cautions us about becoming so familiar with spiritual truths that we lose sight of who Christ is. See, this text reminds us that everything we have is only because of faith in Jesus Christ. That there is only one hope for our past, present, and future, regardless of our story, history, heritage, whatever. Never let believing in Christ become something that you take for granted. Because belief and surrendering to the will of Jesus is everything. And without it, we have nothing. God, thank you for who you are. I thank you for sending your son to die for us and, and to continue to offer your grace and mercy for, for all of us, for anyone who chooses to believe in you. I pray that today, if there's conviction of the heart or if there's anyone who needs to talk, that they would reach out to any other believer and, and truly embrace a relationship with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.